You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, that in everything he will be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace. By the blood of the cross, him we proclaim. Good morning, good to see you. If you have a Bible, Colossians 3, turn there. One thing I do need to mention, this is all I'm going to say about it. If we ever doubted God's sovereignty, he has protected us today by orchestrating that Bill would not be preaching this morning. (laughs) Amen. Colossians chapter three. If, uh, If you are new or you're visiting with us, we are in week eight of a series through the book of Colossians and we're calling it Him We Proclaim, all right? And just so we're on the same page, who is the Him that we proclaim? Jesus, that's right, that was a softball, okay? That was like the, uh, the first inning, the top half of the first inning, game five the other day, okay? You can't miss that. Jesus is the one we proclaim, and so we're calling it that because that is the point of Paul's letter, and so far, what we've seen in the, this book through chapters one and two is that Paul is basically just painting a picture for us of here is who Jesus is and here is what he's done. Right? And then over and over again, what we see him doing is he's just kind of hammering this point that Jesus Christ is central to all of life. And we see things in Colossians 1, verse 15 to 17 like this, where he says, not only is Jesus the image of the invisible God, but the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. Right? Not only were all things created by him and through him, but he actually holds all things together, right? And all things were created for him. So over and over again, Paul is hitting this point that Jesus is central to all of life, that it is him we proclaim. And so if you were here with us last week, you saw the way that Paul wraps up this section in chapter two, and he says, again, here's who Jesus is, here's what he's done, and then he's gonna transition to say, here's why this matters for you, right? This is what, um, why nothing else is going to do, why it has to be Jesus, and nothing more, nothing less is going to work. And what he's talking about in is what's happening in Colossae is that there's this group of false teachers who've come in and they said, yeah, you do need Jesus. He is good, but he's not enough. You need Jesus plus this, Jesus plus right living or Jesus plus whatever. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. Bill used the illustration of a a fake jersey, right? From a distance, it looks great. It looks like the real thing. But when you go to put it on, when you go to use that thing for what it was made to be used for, or when you try to compare it to the original, you can see it's counterfeit. 
the logo was all crooked, it's made out of this cheaper material, you know it's not going to last. And Paul is saying to us in the book of Colossians, him we proclaim, meaning Jesus is the real thing. He will last. He can hold the weight of your life. And so when we get to chapter three, we get to a hinge point in the book and Paul is transitioning like he does in a lot of his writing from here's who he is and what he's done to here's why that matters for you. And so he's moving into kind of a practical application in our lives. And he starts by talking about our personal lives and then he moves to talking about our corporate lives. And we're gonna see this in the next several weeks. This is everything from how our lives should work within the church, not the building, but the people of God, how those relationships should function, how our relationships at home should function as spouses and parents and children, and also how our lives uh, as vocationally should function, as employers and employees. And so the point is this. There isn't a single inch of your life that is not directly affected by your belief of who Jesus is and what he's done. Not a single domain of your life that isn't directly affected by who you believe Jesus to be. And Paul is saying Jesus is the real thing. And when you see the real thing, it changes everything. When you get your eyes on the real Jesus, it changes everything. You know he's enough. You will know that he is the true source of life and joy and contentment in this world. And so what does this mean for us on a practical level where that's where the conversation goes in chapter three? But instead of starting in verse one, I want us to read verse 17 first. So if you have a Bible, Colossians 3, verse 17. The reason why is because this is sort of a summary statement of all that Paul's gonna line out in the chapter up to this point. Let's look at it. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what is Paul saying here? Everything we do should be shaped by these two things, that we would do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and that we would give thanks to God the Father through him. So surely he doesn't mean everything here, right? Because that would be impossible. Well, in the original language, this word everything, it means all of the things, right? All of them. And he even clarifies, he says, in word or deed, and that doesn't just mean the things you say or do, it does mean that, and that would be hard enough, but it actually goes deeper, The phrase he uses here is meant to be all-encompassing, and so it's everything we say or do, but it's also the things we think and feel, the things that motivate us, our desire, our longings, right? And Paul says, here's what the Christian life should look like, that your life would be marked by two things, that you would do things, everything, in the name of the Lord, and that you would give uh, thanks to God through Jesus. So, real quick, what does it mean for us to do things in the name of the Lord? I think that it is pointing us back to the reality that Jesus Christ is central to all of life. Not only are we reconciled to God through Christ, meaning that we were broken in every way, no way to come back to him, and he restores that relationship to him, not only that, but we should live our lives aware of his authority and his reputation. That Christ should not just be part of our lives, but he should be all of our lives. He's central to our life, that he is king, he is the one on the throne. And we live in response to that. We do things in the name of the Lord Jesus, knowing that he is the one who calls the shots. And then he says, in everything, give thanks to God the Father through him. In everything you do, give thanks to God. Does that feel impossible to anyone else? Right, am I alone or does that feel a little bit overwhelming? That this is what the Christian life's supposed to look like. That everything I do, I'm supposed to be constantly aware of who Christ is and what he's done. And my life is supposed to be this overflow of gratitude and thankfulness in my heart to God. And so I didn't grow up in church. 
I've been at this thing for over 10 years now, intentionally given my life to follow after Jesus. And by God's grace, man, there has been some growth in some areas. But I cannot say honestly that verse 17 is an accurate description of my life. Maybe part of my life, but not all of it. Not most of it. And my guess is if you were honest, you're right there with me. God says this is what the Christian life should look like and I see a gap between my experience and what he says it should look like. So what do we do about that? That's discouraging, right? What does that mean for us? Sometimes it feels like the best option is to give up. And you go, man, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. I've been trying for 10 years. There's still a gap. What do I do? Do I give up? I was typing that this week. My mind went to John 6. And Jesus is with his disciples and all these people are gathering around him, following after him. And they're enthralled with his miracles and all the things that he's able to do. And he's trying to take them past that. He wants to move them past this space of here's what I can do for you and you're excited about what I can give you and he wants to move them into submitting their lives to his lordship and they basically say, hey, that's hard. I don't know about that. John 6, verse 66, he says, after this, when he tried to move them to that place, to some of his disciples, to many rather, to turn back and no longer walked with him. And then Jesus said to the 12, do you wanna go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, no one else. Peter says, where else could we go? You are the one who has life. So we don't give up because that's not an option for us. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Colossians 2, verse six, where Paul says, therefore, since this is who Jesus is, since you, or as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, he says, so walk in him. As you've received the reality of who Christ is and what he's done, and you've seen the vision of what your life should look like now, instead of going, hey, there's this gap, I'm giving up. Instead of, I see this gap, I, I, I'm not good enough. He says, keep going, keep going. And I don't know about you, but how comforting is it that the Bible says that God doesn't expect us to be perfect. God doesn't expect us or following after him to be easy. If he did, there would be no reason for him to encourage us to keep going. But the reality is there is a gap between the vision God gives for the Christian life and from what most of our actual experience is. And so the question I wanna answer today is how do we close the gap? How do we work to shrink it? And that's what I think Colossians 3 answers for us. Look at verse one with me. I'm gonna read a chunk of this and then we're just gonna kind of dig in on the first part. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another 
seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He says here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and he is in all. Amen. So there are two big buckets of things here that I wanna make sure that you don't miss. And the first one, or these two buckets, is basically Paul saying, if you wanna close the gap in your life, there's two things that you can't miss. The first one is the what, right? This is the what of what you need to be doing if you wanna close the gap. And then woven throughout it, and really at the front there, is the second bucket, and it's the how. How do we do it? What is the fuel that motivates us toward that right action? So I wanna start with the what, look at verse five. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives us a couple of lists of things that should not be a part of our lives if we want to close the gap. Put to death what is earthly in you. What does that mean? So a um, couple phrases here we need to make sure we grab onto. Put to death, in the original language, is one word, and it means um, to make dead. It means to deprive of strength or power, or literally, it means to kill. And so we get this other word here, this word earthly which just means land. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about the environment, we shouldn't recycle, even though Savannah doesn't want us to. Um, the idea here is worldly or culture, right? Whatever exists in us that flows from the culture or the world around us rather than from the kingdom of God, the Bible's saying, hey, you put that to death, you kill it. You need to be proactive to take steps to choke the life out of that to remove that sin from your life. And then he lists some of those. And this is not intended to be an exhaustive list. And we're gonna talk about that more next week. But this is our first what. That if we wanna close the gap in our lives, this is what we should be doing. Identifying the sin that's in us and putting it to death. And so here's the thing. This may be the first time that you've heard anyone talk about this in that way. Like you go all UFC on your sin. Um, but this is not the first time we've heard that following Jesus means that there are things that we shouldn't be doing. We know that. No one in here is thinking, regardless of your church background, why did anyone not tell me that I wasn't supposed to be sexually immoral? Why didn't anyone tell me that it's wrong for me to lose my mind in traffic and start flipping everybody the bird, right? Why didn't, we're not thinking that. We know that there are things that we shouldn't be doing if we want to be a Christian or wanna follow Jesus. In fact, for some of us, we've elevated that part of the Christian life. It is part, but it is not whole. We have elevated that part of the Christian life as if it is synonymous with what it means to follow Jesus. Many of us grew up in a version of Christianity that went something like this. God is good, you're not. Go try harder, we'll see you next Sunday. Right, that's kind of the version for, that many of us have grown up in, and this is why I think that so many of us live our lives in this kind of spiritual schizophrenia, where one minute we believe that God loves us and he delights in us and then as soon as we drop the ball, what happens? We feel the need to run and hide from God until we can clean ourselves up enough to come back to him. We know that there are things that we're not supposed to be doing. Let me just ask you this. How's it going? How are you doing? If you look at the trajectory of your life, however long you've been following Jesus, have you seen victory over your sin? And even if you have been able to manage your sin or corral it into one area of your life or another, have you put it to death in such a way that it no longer has power over you? You see, for many of us, being a Christian means this, that we try real hard in short bursts to keep a list of do's and don'ts. 
And then we read a passage like this and it can reinforce this idea for us. Look at verse nine. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Just put off and put on. Paul uses this illustration. It's a word that can literally mean to get dressed. And his point is, if you're a Christian, if you're gonna follow Jesus, there are things that you shouldn't be wearing anymore. There are things that you should be wearing now and we should move into doing that. Put these things off and put these things on. And we read that and we position ourselves under the weight of it and instead of it drawing us into the life and the joy that God intended it to lead us into, it crushes us. And we get convicted. And so we try real hard in these short bursts until our cravings consume that conviction and we give in a little bit and then a little bit more and a little bit more until we're overwhelmed by guilt and shame and we feel dirty and unclean and unworthy of God's love and his affection. And so we distance ourselves from him and we distance ourselves from the church until we can feel like we've cleaned ourselves up enough to come back to him and then the cycle starts over. Spiritual schizophrenia, bouncing back and forth. God loves me one moment, one moment, I feel dirty. And you know what makes it worse is the whole time this is going on in us, we pretend like we're fine. Conversations with Christians go like this. Oh man, how's it going? Oh man, you know, work's tough, school's tough, life's busy, but I'm blessed, praise God, right? That's kind of where we keep it. And here's the thing, you are blessed, so am I. God has poured out more mercy and kindness on us in his son Jesus than we will ever know until we see him face to face. But when we say, I'm blessed, praise God, is that what we mean? Are we saying life's tough right now, like just like God said it would be, but I'm trusting him. I'm positioning myself under the waterfall of his grace and his mercy, is that what we mean? I think we use I'm blessed and praise God or words like that to self-protect, to keep people at arm's reach. They don't ask deeper questions that actually get us at the heart level. And in doing that, we stiff arm one of God's greatest blessings to us, the gift of his church. Keep everybody at arm's reach. I'm fine. Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and still week after week we show up and we pretend that our grip is as strong as ever and yet we're holding on by a thread. I think what happens is many of us, we understand the what category. We know the things that we should be doing, the things that we shouldn't be doing, and we know the how, but we get it in the wrong order. We think that for God to love us, it's up to us to obey enough to deserve his love that we've gotta follow the rules, and the problem with that is the Bible says that obedience does not lead us into God's love but rather obedience flows from it. And the only way to actually obey is in order for it not to be an effort to earn God's love, but for it to come from a place of knowing that despite the fact that you don't deserve it, God has poured his love out on you and his son. It is from that place that we can actually obey and then these, these things don't become a list of rules, it becomes a way for us to experience joy and contentment and life in this world. Look at verse one. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. This is a conditional statement. If you've been raised with Christ, then put off and put on. And, the, and the, the, what you need to see there is the order matters. 
It starts with God's love for us, not what we need to do in order to earn it. If you've been raised with Christ, then go do these things. And what he's doing is he's pointing them back to chapters one and two, where he says this is who Jesus is and what he's done. In chapter two, verse 12, having been buried with him, with Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, that's what we contribute believing in who Jesus is and what he's done through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He says, in you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is what it means to be raised with Christ that we have placed our faith in the reality that though we were dead in our sins and are completely undeserving of God's love and incapable of saving ourselves, God made us alive together with Christ. The perfect son of God lays his life down on our behalf to take the record of debt that stands against us. And the imagery here is this mountain of debt that is sitting on top of this coffin and it's locking us inside and we're suffocating and there's nothing that we can do to get out of it. And the Bible says that God in his infinite strength, he sets it aside. But the good news of the gospel is not just that he sets us aside and now he's like, hey, go work real hard not to end up back in there. It says the record of debt was canceled. A word that means to obliterate, to wash in every way. I don't know where your mind goes when you hear that. Mine goes, how could that be? And the answer is that Jesus nailed it to the cross. We are raised in Christ to walk in the newness of life. This is what Paul means when he says, if you've been raised with Christ, and then he gets us to the what. But before he gets us to the what, he gets us to the how. Look at verse one and two. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. So Paul just gives us two things there that function as the how for us. This is the fuel, the only fuel that can motivate us to the what, to the putting on, the putting off of Christianity. He's saying this, if you want to close that gap in your lives, you need to seek and you need to set. We need to seek the things that are above. Another way to say that. Another translation literal would be have an upward desire that we would long for the things of God. And at the root of that is I think what Paul is saying in verse 17, right? That our hearts and our desires would be focused on Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He says that our minds need to go there as well. And his point is this. If we wanna close the gap, it starts with what is inside of us, not with what's on the outside. He's saying that this is how we need to see Jesus. That before anything happens on the outside, it needs to be inside. It's an inside out transformation and we need to see him. We need to set our heart on him. Our desires need to be on him. We need to look up the things that are above. Second Corinthians three says it this way. And we all with unveiled face Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, into the image of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Here's what that means. Sin blinds us from seeing the real Jesus. 
Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection, he lifted the veil and we ha- he has set us free so that we can see him, so we can put our eyes on him. And when we see him, we said this earlier, it changes everything. When you see the real Jesus, you know he is the source of true joy and contentment and life in this world. And when we look at him, we're transformed. It says from one degree of glory to the next. And he says, this comes from the Lord which means it's not something that we have the power to do, that transforming his children is the work of God alone. And this is why we can't jump to the putting off and the putting on. This is why the cycle of trying real hard and short bursts is never going to work for you. And it's why Paul starts Colossians 3 with, if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is. And his exhortation is this, it's look up. Get your eyes off of the things of the earth and get your eyes onto him and when you do, everything else falls into place. Not that life goes easy, but it works. And I know this probably feels like more of the what and not the how, let me explain. One of the things that happens as you get older, and I know I'm not old, all right, but I know I'm getting older, it's just happening, it's a process. One of the ways you know this is happening for you is when you start to care about certain things that you didn't care about before. One of those is the weather, okay? (laughs) When you're young, you just don't care about the weather. One of my most used apps is the Weather Channel app, okay? So much so that like people have their favorite weather apps. So if you use the Apple Weather app, that's a rookie move, right? You need to get weather bug, okay? That's the real one. That's where you're gonna know what's happening, okay? So there, we have favorite weather apps. You know who doesn't have a favorite weather app? College students, they don't. Um, here's another one. Maybe this is just for the guys. I'm not sure, but this is how I know I'm not young anymore. I really care about my lawn. <laughs> like I really care about my lawn. Several of us go to lunch on Tuesday. I'm not gonna our staff, I'm not gonna tell you where because it's poor stewardship. It's excellent financial stewardship, it's poor uh, bodily stewardship. Um, But anyways, one of the guys, the younger guys pointed out to me on on one day, he was like, you guys are always talking about your grass. Like I hope it's, it looks like it's gonna rain. I hope it rains today, man, my grass really needs it, right? So see the weather and the, it all merges into one. It's how you know if you're getting old. So we moved here a little over a year ago and our front yard when we bought the house was pretty nice. Like we inherited something to work with. We weren't starting from scratch. And it was probably 80-20, 80% grass, 20% weeds, you know, which is a good starting point. Um, over the course of the last year, I've been cutting my grass regularly, doing my best to maintain it, right? I don't water it often. We don't have a sprinkler system, so that's just a pain, you get it. Um, I pull weeds whenever I see them pop up, but for whatever reason now, our grass is probably 60-40. All right, we're going in the wrong direction. It's just, but I got a plan, okay, don't worry. I'm not gonna tell you that plan because that's not important, but about halfway through this summer, this huge dead spot started to form in our yard. I don't know what it was, fungus, bugs, I don't know, right? The nitrogen level was wrong in the soil, who knows? Um, But this huge dead spot formed in our yard through the summer out of nowhere, and then now where that dead spot was is completely filled in with weeds. And here's the point. In our lives of following Jesus, we will need to be proactive to pull weeds. You can't just mow them over, they will spread. You have to pull them up by the root. You have to deprive them of their source of power. But what is the best way to keep weeds from going in your yard? It's not focusing on the weeds. The best way is to work to cultivate a healthy lawn. 
Nothing chokes out weeds more than a thick and healthy lawn. You have to water it, you have to fertilize it, and when weeds do pop up, you have to pull them up by the root, and we're gonna talk about that next week, but it's the same way with following Jesus, that you will never get to where you wanna be in your life if you focus on what's on the outside. Here's what I need to put off. Here's what I need to put on. At best, all you will be able to do is maintain, and from my experience, I'm seeing it's going in the wrong direction in my front yard. You get to where you wanna be by cultivating what's on the inside. And so Paul says, look up. He says, you wanna change what's on the outside, you need healthy roots. If you want healthy roots, you need to look up. Seek and set, get your eyes on Christ, set your minds on him. Most of us, we know who the real Jesus is. It's just been forever since we've looked at him. We can tell the difference between the real jersey and the counterfeit jersey, but we quit wearing ours. We tucked it in the back of the closet somewhere. And we're frustrated and we wonder why it feels like we're stuck and we're not going anywhere. And the reason we're not being transformed is because we forgot to behold. We get the order wrong. So how do we seek the things that are above? Honestly, it's difficult to say because we're all different. God has wired each of us differently, individually in specific things, right? And so as a result, different things are gonna stir up your heart and your mind toward Jesus than they will for me. But here's an example. Friday night, um, we have a college retreat going on this weekend, so Friday night I was uh, encouraging them with the word, so I went out there, and there were some of our community group leaders who were out there to um, provide a meal for them, which is awesome, right? They were doing that. So I walk over to a couple of the guys, and they're having a conversation about running, and one of them just said that he finished a marathon recently or something like that and then I started to check out because that's not, that's not me and then the other guy was like, yeah, and I used to do ultra marathons, ran 100 miles, that kind of thing um, and I was just you know, blown away but they didn't say this but I've heard a guy say this before that man, I just feel the pleasure of God when I run. When my lungs get tired, my legs get weak, I just, I'm reminded of how God's wired my body and I just feel, I'm reminded that God loves me. When I run, I'm reminded of the opposite. It feels like God hates me. I'm reminded of God's wrath in that moment. I have a strong rule. I only run if there's a ball involved. Maybe if someone's chased me, but that hasn't happened in a while. Um, Some people like gardening, right? If you had a free Saturday afternoon, you would love nothing more than to go get out and work in the garden. I have a friend, a close friend from Texas, who he, he just is a gardener, loves to cultivate the ground. He said when he's out there working the ground, pruning weeds, doing the whole thing. When he's out there, it reminds him of the command that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden to work the ground and to keep it. (laughs) That's just not me, man. Like, I prefer the common grace of a grocery store. You know what I mean? God's gift to all of us called Kroger. It's awesome. (laughs) We're different. One of the things for me recently that's been stirring my heart up and reminding me to look up is playing out in the front yard with my kids, my weed-filled yard. Um, not playing with them inside, even though I do like that, but it doesn't stir my heart in the same way because I'm like, quit breaking that, don't hit your, you know what I mean? But when we're out in the front yard, kicking the ball around and run, I'm just reminded that God loves me. I mean, look at these kids running around. I prayed, I asked God for kids. He answered our prayer and there they are and they're running around. Like that just stirs my heart up. It reminds me to look up. I love to play basketball. And every Monday at lunch, we try to play basketball and I don't think about anything in that hour except for I'm gonna put this ball in the hole, right? It just reminds me that God loves me. I love the game. I love to play golf. I love to get out there. You might hate that. 
We need to do the things. We're all different. God has uniquely wired us differently, but the exhortation in this text is the same for all of us. Look up. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So it's up to you to identify those things that remind you who Christ is and what he's done. And then as much as you can, make those things a part of your life. Not just do the things that make you happy. Those illustrations might have made you think that. That's not what I'm saying. Do the things that remind you that God loves you. And he says, seek the things that are above, not the things that are on earth, which means anything in your life that doesn't stir you up, quit allowing those things to dominate the way you spend your time. And I don't think he's talking about things that are outright sinful here because he's gonna get to that in the next section. I think he's talking about things that are morally neutral, which means that those are things that I couldn't go to the scripture and say, hey, you need to stop doing that. See how that's wrong. These are things that are morally neutral, things like binge watching Netflix maybe, things like social media. Again, those things aren't inherently sinful, but what do they do to your eyes? Do they remind you to look up? They remind you to look in. All the things you don't have, or does it cultivate in you an overwhelming thankfulness in your heart to God? Does it remind you to look up? Paul says, get your eyes on Christ. Part of that's gonna look different for all of us. Part of it'll be the same. We gotta do this quickly, and the timer cut off like 10 minutes ago, so I have no idea where we're at, but three things that are the same for all of us that remind us to look up, they all start with the letter S. Because when Bill's gone, I like to have three points that start with the same letter. I think it makes him happy a little bit, you know? Three things, scriptures, Sabbath, and surrounding yourself with like-minded people. For every single one of us, looking up will include time in the scriptures. That's the Bible. And I would put, the, I put prayer into that category as well. That we need to be regularly spending time in the word of God because the primary way that God reveals himself to us is through the pages of scripture. God is speaking to us. If we wanna see Jesus, we need to look at him in the word. We need to spend time praying. And you need to be careful here because you're gonna be tempted when you hear that to jump back on the treadmill. Try real hard in short, short bursts. But let me just free you up with this. It's not a race. It's cultivating deep roots. If you never spend time in the word of prayer except for in here on Sunday morning, set a goal this week to do it one time Put it on your calendar and do it. If you usually do it once or twice, do it two or three times. Just move it down the line. Look up. Spend time regularly in the scriptures and in prayer. The second thing is Sabbath. We spent a whole lot of time on this about a month ago. There's a sermon on our website called Learning to Rest. You can go back and listen to it, watch it if you want. The point is this. Part of getting our eyes on Jesus will include taking time where we aren't constantly doing and we just be. Put your email away, you put your phone away. Maybe turn the TV off and remember that you are loved by God not because of what you do but because of who he says you are. We need to rest, we need a Sabbath. And then lastly, we surround ourselves with people who are like-minded. We said earlier, this is hard. There is a gap, this is difficult, we will be tempted. I, as one of your pastors, are, I'm tempted from time to time to go, is this real? Should I give up, am I good enough? We need each other to do this. If we wanna get our eyes on Jesus, we need to quit pretending like we're good, like we got it under control. This is why we do community groups. 
Not for another reason for you to fill your schedule, but this is a big room. And we need to get in smaller rooms. Intentionally gathering with people, committing our lives to follow after Jesus with each other and to help each other. We need people in our lives who when we've been looking astray, when our eyes are down too much, they remind us, hey, look up. People in our lives, in our world, who we're not pretending with, who actually know us so they can point us out like that. Get your eyes up. Let people see the real you. You're gonna be no better off if you join a community group, but you refuse to let people in. Now you're just busier. I read this week where a pastor said that you will never neglect your relationship with God into a place of deep abiding intimacy. In the same way that you can't neglect your yard into lawn of the month. We gotta cultivate health. We need to identify the things in this world that naturally draw our eyes to Jesus and make them a regular part of our lives. Spend time in the scriptures. Spend time when we're not doing, we're just being, we're just Sabbath and surrounding ourselves with like-minded people. Let me end with this promise, verse three. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul goes right back to where he started. He says, your life is hidden with Christ. We've said this a lot lately, that it is our position that drives our practice. Our identity in Jesus must come before our activity for him. We start with who he says we are and then we go and do. We start by looking up and then we work to put off and put on. And friends, I know this is hard. It's hard to see Jesus. I know some days you feel like giving up, keep going. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's this promise that Jesus is coming back and we're gonna be there with him. And we're not gonna wanna run and hide ourselves because of guilt and shame. He's gonna welcome us in like the prodigal son, like a father running out to him. He welcomes us in. The prophet Isaiah says, and the book of Revelation says that on that day, we won't even need the sun or the moon anymore because he will be our light that it will be impossible for us to miss him in that moment. And so for now, we keep going. We get our eyes up. Let me pray and we're gonna sing and respond to the goodness and the grace of God. Father, we are thankful. We are thankful this morning for the reminder to look up. Thank you that it isn't up to us to do enough for you to be pleased in us. I'm grateful for the good news of the gospel. I pray for these men and women, the children in the room, God, that you would remind us that our identity in you must come before our activity for you. Help us to know that we're loved by you. Help us to get our eyes up, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.